Welcome to the Brothers in Crime podcast. We are brothers. We talk about true crime. We don't take ourselves too seriously. And you shouldn't either. When the detective asked, when did you start cutting up his body? She replies, oh, I don't remember. I was sucking and cutting at the same time. Shad Therian was 24 years old, and he worked with his dad and his grandfather in a family business of some sort. He enjoyed camping, games, and family. That's according to his obituary, which also says he was a talented artist who liked wood carving. He's described by family and friends as kind, compassionate, thought of others first. He was frequently smiling and someone who will be missed by many which has been said by some friends and family. Unfortunately, there's not a great deal of information available about his life. Early on, like right after the murder, his family expressed a desire to maintain their privacy. That might be part of why information is so scarce, and we can certainly respect that. But also the details about who Shad was in life might be muted by the horrific nature of the crime, the graphic details, and just the bizarre behavior of the defendant, which are just unreal. We do know that while Shad didn't live with his mom, her name is Tara, he didn't live with her full time. He did stay there some and spend time at her house and he would do his laundry there in her basement. On the night of February 22nd, 2022, Tara noticed the light was on in the basement and she went downstairs and she saw a bucket on the floor with a towel over it. It was out of place. She lifted the towel and saw what appeared to be her son's head. She goes back upstairs. She tells her boyfriend who lives there with her. They've lived there together for a few years what she thinks she's seen. And he goes down and he takes a look and he's like, I don't know what the hell is in that bucket, but I have really bad vision. But when Tara first told him, I think that's Shad's head in that bucket. He's like, come on, really? You can tell he kind of thinks she's lost her mind, which makes sense because that is so bizarre and crazy. You'd be thinking like, are you on mushrooms or did you forget to take your meds? There's no way. Like, that's not yeah. a thing. That's the kind of thing that nobody anticipates that. You never, seen some, I've seen some crazy stuff in a bucket that doesn't even come to that. Yeah. The worst I've found in buckets that I've peered into out there in the field was someone had one bucket that was for doing a number one and one bucket that was for doing number twos. Yeah. Well, okay. Right. That's like in the realm of what you might expect to find in a bucket that you didn't maybe want to find. Right. That's realistic gross. Not, not like a human head. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, it's not that he thinks she has a mental health issue. He just thinks this can't. No, there's no way. You're nuts. They call the police. The police come out and they go down to take a look. And you can tell that the police also believe that they're not going to find a head in a bucket. They believe that this is a well-intended mental health issue kind of call, meaning that they assume they're going to get there and probably find that the caller maybe is schizophrenic or having hallucinations or some kind of medical emergency. Or maybe there's like a funky looking possum or raccoon or something that died in a bucket and kind of has the shape of a person's head. Yeah, that'd probably be the worst of what they think they're going to find. But it's not yeah. it's not uncommon for police and fire and EMS to get bizarre sounding calls that are mental health issues. So you get all kinds of calls for there's people in my walls or so-and-so just came in and killed everybody. Usually the 911 operator is able to kind of work through that a little bit and determine that there's not a real basis in reality here and relay that on. But in this case, and when you hear the 911 call, Tara wasn't hysterical. I think she was not believing what she knew she was seeing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's her kid. I can't even wrap my mind around what that would be like. I mean, that's awful. I don't know how you would ever get that image out of your head. Yeah, that's... Uh, 
but one police officer goes down before the other. He lifts the towel. He looks, he sees what he thinks he sees. He calls the other one down. The other one looks and they both agree. Holy shit. That's a head. So one of them gets on the radio. Now the guns come out because someone has obviously murdered someone. Is the murderer still around? We've got to do a quick sweep. Is there another victim? Is They don't know. But he quickly gets on the radio, calls the supervisor and said, yeah, this is not a 961 or a 96 issue, which I assume to mean some parts of the country, a 1096 is a psychiatric problem, which is a way of communicating. You mean they don't just say, hey, turns out she's not crazy. We're good. Well, the federal government would like first responders to do that. And actually, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, changed to a plain language model for radios because you've heard 10-4 and all these other 10 codes. Well, there's no consistency across the country on that. So 10-4 generally means okay, acknowledged, got it everywhere across the country. But 10-8 might mean in route in Bakersfield, California, where 10-8 means I'm going to lunch in Dover, Delaware. Every agency can do their own thing. But 1096 in a lot of jurisdictions means crazy or psychiatric emergency. So it would be a way even for the dispatcher when they're taking a call and they get to the point where they realize there probably aren't really people in these walls to say to the police officer over the radio where everybody in Scannerland's listening, uh, believe this caller may have a 1096 issue. So it's kind of understood. So the cop calls the supervisor and said, yep, we're going to need more people here. This is not a 96. This is what it was reported as. And I give him credit for not saying there's an effing head in this bucket. He, he handled it pretty well. Yeah. Now, you know, on the inside, they were startled. Don't get me wrong. Who wouldn't be? For the mom, that's terrifying. Like you said, I, I can't imagine how you'd ever get that image out of your head. And that's awful. But then, I mean, these first responders, nothing prepares you for that. I mean, that's just another level of out there. Yeah. Well, and to your point, too, about it, you know, they drew their weapons immediately because heads don't naturally just come off. I mean, that's not something it's not like even a potential suicide type thing. Clearly, somebody has committed some form of a crime. Exactly. And now they're in this basement in the middle of the night. They do a sweep of the house. The only people that were home at the time were Shad's mother and her boyfriend, who is not Shad's father. It's Tara's live-in boyfriend. And then one of Tara's other children was upstairs in the second floor asleep throughout this ordeal. And obviously they didn't want to expose her to any of this. Oh, thank goodness. I mean, the least amount of people that have to view this or interact with this situation, the better. Right. So after the police confirmed that there is indeed a head in this bucket, and they would later determine that in addition to a head, there was also a penis in the bucket with the head. Oh, stop. Come on. Before we go any further. Is there anything else in this bucket that I need to know about? Those are the only two body parts that we're aware were in the bucket. Well, thank goodness for that. Although I think I'm maxed out. I don't know what else she could have put in there. Apparently there were a few knives in the bucket as well. Oh. It sounds like she used an assortment of kitchen knives that she found there in mom's house. Oh, well, okay. So at some point there, the police determine that Shad has a friend named Taylor Shabusiness. And Uh, that sounds like a made up name. This is like Phoebe in Friends when she has like Princess Consuela and he's like whatever banana hammocks. Did she just make this name up or what's the deal? Okay. The Friends reference is completely lost on me because the only thing I know about that show is how to turn it off. But as far as the the Shabusiness question, she was married to a man named Warren Shabow. And for whatever reason, he goes by Shabusiness. And so does she. 
Okay. And I'm not sure why you pick Shabiznis over Shabal. My inclination that this was a made-up name was accurate. It absolutely was. So the police learn that this woman, Taylor Shabiznis, is a friend, perhaps a friend with benefits or girlfriend, and they pretty quickly want to go see her. And when they arrive at the apartment building where she lives, the police are looking in this gold minivan that she doesn't own it, but she's been known to drive it. It belongs to, I guess, her roommate. So they're kind of looking through the windows. There's a crock pot box sitting there inside the vehicle and some other just junk. And as they're about to turn from the vehicle and start to head toward her apartment, the lights come on the vehicle like somebody's pushing the remote. She meets them out front then, and she's not confrontational at all. She's very chill, and she's got some blood on her. The crockpot box contains some other body parts that she had not yet disposed of. So during an interrogate, you didn't know about the crockpot box? (laughs) It's so inappropriate to laugh, but it's like my defense mechanism. And so I'm just thinking about, we got a bucket with a head and a penis. And now I'm thinking, oh Lord, what's in the crock pot box? Like, I don't know if I want to know. It's probably not good. And what's wrong with this woman? I want to say it was parts of his lower limbs that ended up in the crock pot box. Oh man. I think that's what the forensic pathologist explained. And I'm also thinking like, so you took this crock pot box with parts, but you just left the bucket with these other parts. She said she really wanted the head and she intended to take that with her, but she said she was tired and she got really lazy because as she was doing all this dismembering along with the other things she was doing, says she dozed off a couple times. I have questions about dozing off while cutting up a person. This story is too much. Oh my gosh. She had blood on her and when police asked her what happened, she said, that's a good question. She claimed she didn't know that she had blacked out. She wasn't really sure. Later during one of the interrogations, Shabiznis explained that her and Chad had been hanging out with a friend earlier in the day And then that night, her and Shad went to his mom's house. This is the house where the head was found in the bucket. And they were down in the basement. And Chad pulls out these two dog chain collars. They're not fabric. What are they, choke chains or something? The kind where you pull on it and it gets tighter so the dog stops doing whatever you don't want the dog to do. Right, those medieval devices. So she says that he pulls these out. And although it was unspoken, she understood that they were going to wear the collars and choke each other. At one point, the detective asked her, does she know that's what Chad wanted her to do? And she says something to the effect of, I don't know if that's what he wanted, but I sure as hell knew that's what I was going to do. Wow. Which is just, yeah. During one of the interrogations, they've got her in a yellow jumpsuit and it looks like a, it's almost like a plastic jumpsuit. I don't know if it's disposable or what. And so she starts that interrogation complaining about the outfit she got on. Oh, well, you know, priorities. During this interrogation, she explained in disturbing detail how, as she was choking Shad, his face was turning purple. He was making these noises. His tongue got kind of caught up in the chain and he was bleeding from the mouth. And she goes on to say that the reason she didn't stop as he was dying is because she wanted to see what it was like. And she acted and said things that made it sound like she was surprised or maybe a little irritated with how long it was actually taking for him to die. She checked and he still had a heartbeat and she was like, come on. That's awful. She claims this person was someone that she loved. He was her buddy. I hate to see how she treated somebody she didn't like. Right? She says nothing bad about him. Nowhere during the interrogation. There was no evidence in the trial that there was any problem whatsoever. She considers him a buddy and loved him. Wow. Some other things that came up during the interrogation, when they asked her 
what she did with the body. So this is early on where they know that he's been decapitated because they found the head, but they don't know where the rest of him is. And they haven't figured out what's in the crock pot box yet at this point or anything else. They just know they've got a head. So they ask her, what did you do with the body? And her answer is the body's there. And most of the body was there in his mother's house in bags and containers spread around the basement. She kind of explains this to the detectives and says, good luck finding all the parts. Wow. Oh my God. So, so she explains that she's cut him up into many pieces and, and put him into various containers. Part of him, I believe, was in a like a plastic tote. And then there were various bags and whatnot. When they were asking her about the sexual encounter, she explained, and she was not shy. She said, I was riding him like a donkey. I, I'm like, you know, that's crass. But we're not talking about just somebody having an uncouth conversation. She is talking about the man that she has killed and cut up into many pieces. I'm, I'm having trouble, like, lining that all up in my mind. So this is her quote friend who she has some sort of relationship of some kind with, but she's also dismembered and murdered and she's having all of this. It's one conversation. It seems like this should be three different conversations by three different people. I assume since she's just freely telling them all this information, she never asked for an attorney or anything. I can't imagine any attorney would let her speak given what she's saying. In the videos of the interrogations that were shown in court, there was no attorney visible in those videos and there was no indication that she had ever asked for one. There was never any objection raised by the defense or point made by the defense that these questions should not have been asked. Yeah, well, then it sounds like she just went ahead. And that alone is crazy to me, too. So, okay, you've done this. The police bring you in. You've literally got blood on your hands. Part of this guy is in your van. Then you've acknowledged that you, what'd she say? She wanted to take the head with her, but she got lazy. She said that about not taking the bucket with her. And she also said that about leaving the crockpot box in the van. She just got lazy because this is apparently a very long ordeal. The detective asked her, when did you start cutting up his body? And her response was, oh, I don't remember. I was sucking and cutting at the same time. And what she means by that, she did explain in the interrogation that even after he was deceased, she was still having sex with his body. I really wasn't going to ask you to clarify that, but she was. She clarified for us. Okay. Wow. She left no detail to the imagination. She explained to the detective that she performed oral sex on him after he was dead. She explained that she used a dildo, inserting that in various parts of him after his death. That's awful. It was surreal to see these well-dressed, well-educated attorneys talking so much about a dildo. I'm sure that when they were in law school, they were not imagining that that's something they would be arguing about in a trial. You know, the way you're describing her interrogation and her commentary on everything that happened so soon after it too it, it almost sounds like she's proud about this in a way like not bragging but kind of bragging or yeah this is great it's what i did it's cool nothing's wrong here nothing to see here i didn't see any tears or i didn't maybe it just wasn't played but i never heard a i'm so sorry he's gone i'm so sorry i did that there was none of that and you may argue that she did say that they had both used ice which is crystal meth prior to this encounter and people do crazy stuff on meth. I mean, let's just put that out there. Meth is one of those drugs, depending on what all happens, how it's laced, what's mixed, yada, 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 et cetera, et cetera. I get that, but you would certainly think that days and weeks and months after, when you realize what you've done, your behavior wouldn't still be so nonchalant and goofy about the situation. I would expect once you realize that your friend is dead and you did it, you would then be sad and sorrowful. 
Yeah, absolutely. When the drugs wear off, there should be a little bit of a change if it's the drugs that are making you that way, right? Right. A day or two later when she's still giggling about all this and she's explaining that she liked it. And she described how she cuddled with his torso after she cut off his head. Wow. I just can't imagine any of this. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like make-believe. You're saying it, and I hear the words, and I know what they mean, and I'm like, no. It sounds like something that would be in a movie that would be too disgusting for anyone to watch. Yeah, it really does. So this happened in February of 2022. The trial was in July of 2023, and there's some odd things that happened leading up to the trial. Her first attorney during one of the hearings, she attacked him at the defense table there in the courtroom. So he asked to be relieved, and he was. The second attorney that she ended up with as a public defender, he had, I don't know, 30 some years of experience and he seemed like he was kind of a general practice attorney in the area. One of the first things that he did was he moved for the judge to recuse himself because the judge had witnessed her, the defendant attacking the first attorney. And that was one of many motions the judge denied. (laughs) Yeah, I don't blame him for making the motion. One thing I want to back up on under this situation, I wouldn't refer to him as a public defender. Maybe they do, but typically I would say he's probably court appointed counsel because he doesn't work for a public defender's office. He's not a public defender. He's a private practicing attorney who's been court appointed to represent her in this case. So he's her court appointed counsel. And defense attorneys, they'll they'll catch a lot of flack because they file a lot of motions, but their job is to protect the rights of the defendant. They'll file a lot of motions because they want to preserve every possible argument they can for appeal. So even if, well, oh, it seems silly, you know, so the judge saw her elbow or punch or headbutt her first attorney. Oh, no, she didn't. She went full out on him. Oh, like she went just WWE stone cold stunner, huh? Handcuffed and shackled, did the drop down on his head. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to have to watch the video now. She was trying to take him out. That was not a love tap. Wow. Well, so even in that instance, the judge's whole job is to be impartial. So defense attorney, I'm sure he argued, well, judge, you can't be impartial anymore because you watched her beat this guy up. But the thing is, judges preside over cases all the time where people are accused and charged with things. But they also, they're issuing search warrants or they're reviewing filings that contain um, exhibits or pictures or video or audio of things that involve the defendants and they have to remain impartial. So I think in that situation, unless the judge personally felt some kind of way, which if he denied it, I'm sure he didn't, then I don't really see that being an area for fertile ground. Now, had she jumped over the bench and attacked the judge? Okay, maybe you got a little bit better argument there. Yeah, so in denying the motion, the judge said what you just said, only in a lot less words. <laughs> well, yeah, there's a reason he's a judge. I will say this judge in particular, and I told you this early on in the trial, that I was impressed with him. He is the most polite judge I've ever seen. Even when he's telling people bad news or not giving them what they want, he's incredibly polite. It's that Midwestern charm, man. That wasn't her only outburst, though, when she met with one of the psychiatric folks that was to examine her. I think it was a psychologist, but it may have been a psychiatrist. But this was a doctor of the defense. So it was the defense hired shrink that she was meeting with. And she was silent with her for a while. And then she threw a chair across the room at her. She's like trying to help Miss Shabusiness, so you'd think she would want to, you know, not throw a chair at her. Right. It's not like she lashed out at a prosecutor. So far, she's attacked her attorney and her sides shrink. Take it a step further, right? Why is she here in the first place? Supposedly her friend slash lover slash whatever, she's mutilated him and done creepy stuff with, and then she's beating up her attorney and throwing a chair at her doctor. It sounds like if you're in her orbit... 
get out. Good grief. Doesn't sound like a person that you really want to hang around with. There was some other bizarre behavior, even in the pre-trial stuff. I don't know the names of all that stuff, but there was one of those hearing deals where she's attending by video, I guess, from the facility or whatever, in one of those jumpsuits and the judge is talking to her and she's like standing up and so it points all you can see of her is like her chest down she's clearly not paying attention and the judge even acknowledges that and he's like okay i don't know if she's listening to me or not but i'm gonna say it anyway and he goes on with all this the first of all you have to say the crime itself the first words out of your mouth or the first thought is this woman has to be crazy no sane person would do this stuff who cuddles with a beheaded corpse and who performs fellatio on a decedent and goes on and on. Everything you said for the first five minutes, 10 minutes of this episode, I think you could apply that to. Right. And at one point in her interrogation, she did briefly mention how body parts do grow back. Oh, okay. I was unaware. I don't want to try it. No. I don't think that's worked for anyone yet. The medical examiner's description, decapitation, dismemberment, transection of the torso. Subsequently, internally, the body has been eviscerated. In other words, we have entered inside the body through various cuts through the abdomen and between the ribs where the victim's organs have been removed, largely one by one. Wow. At some point you say, well, this woman is just crazy. And her defense was the state can't prove that she did it. And if they do prove that she did it, she did it because she was crazy. If you're going to try to make the argument that she's not guilty by reason of insanity or mental defect, if that's really your best argument, which in this case, it sounds like it was, you really got to go in and say, okay, we're going to concede she did it. And here, it's not like there's this question about, did she do it? No, they have hours and hours of her explaining in detail what she did. And I think the prosecutor, one of the things he did very well was he explained that she drove this entire investigation. They found this head. They went to her. They followed up on everything that she said, where to find this and that and the other. And as they did, it was check, check, check. It just all lined up perfectly. It violates common sense to think that you're going to stand in front of a jury and say, They didn't prove she did it. And there's a video of her saying, oh, I was playing with his dead body or talking about the knife she used. It's not like she said, well, I found him that way and then I did it. I think you lose credibility with the jury when you try to make an argument that she didn't do it when it's obvious she did it. The effect of that is then when you're trying to argue, well, she didn't do it because she's got this mental issue. You've already lost your credibility because, well, if you're going to argue she didn't do it when there's clear proof that she did it. Why should I believe you when you say she didn't do it because she's crazy? I shouldn't believe you then either. It felt to me like saying, no, I didn't do that. And if I did, it's because I was drunk. Mm -hmm. Well, now, wait a minute. What is it? You know, because if you didn't do it, yeah, I'm with you. It felt like it was trying to hedge the bets and I didn't buy that at all. The state was pretty convincing. Obviously, the jury felt the same way. The state's closing, they summed up their case by going through the two elements of each charge. So starting on the charge of the intentional homicide, here's what we're supposed to prove to you beyond a reasonable doubt, that she killed him and she meant to do it. And it was not hard for them to go right back to her interrogation, her videoed statement to say, well, look, she describes how she killed him. She describes that she knew he was turning purple. But she kept going because she wanted to see what it was like. Even Mm. though at one point she says she didn't want to kill him. That wasn't what she was trying to do. But then when she's into it, she's explaining how she's waiting for his heart to stop beating. So what did you think was going to happen there? Yeah. So they went through that. And the charges were intentional homicide, the uh, sexual assault, 
in the third degree and mutilation of a corpse. And so the sexual assault, again, they said, look, she described it for you what she did. And then as far as the mutilation. Okay. I'm curious. The sexual assault. What was the state's theory on that? Because I don't know. I'm not barred in Wisconsin. I haven't read the Wisconsin statute. I think I know where you're going. Okay. And the defense attorney tried to, as gently as possible, point out that parts of a body are not a person Mm -hmm. and a deceased body is not a person. That's exactly where I was going. There's usually crimes for all sorts of things that you're not supposed to do with a body, desecrating it, mutilating it, whatever. Generally in sexual assault statutes I've seen, I don't know that you could be guilty of that if the individual is deceased. The defense raised that objection and he was gentle about it. He wasn't crass or vulgar or disrespectful, but he as gently as he could said, we've discussed this, I've made this objection. And the judge said, Okay, but we found it. Let me pull up the code. And he pulled it up on his computer and he read some section where it was using the word person. And then there was another spot where the word victim was used in a couple of places. And based on whatever technicalities were there that I don't understand at all, the judge felt like the sexual assault charge was legit. Well, there you go. Judge is the judge. So at the end of the day, what he says goes and then The appellate court will decide if he got it right. I'm curious about it. I'm looking up this statute. Wisconsin law 940-225, which is a section that covers sexual assault. Subsection 7 says death of victim. This section applies whether a victim is dead or alive at the time of the sexual contact or sexual intercourse. So that seems pretty cut and dry. No pun intended. I'm sorry. Oh, God. Anyway, please continue. That, oh, oh. I'm sorry, poor guy. So the state goes on, and one of their points as far as her having intent, they pointed out that after the death, it's not like she killed him and then she called 911. Oh my gosh, he stopped breathing. All the things she did after he was dead, not only to his body, but then dismembering him and hiding all the parts of him and saying that she knew she had to get out of there because she was going to get caught. Even at one point, she's describing how she's in the basement cutting him up and doing whatever other nasty things she's doing. And the basement door opens and it was his mom letting the cat downstairs. She talks about how surreal it is that the kitty cat that she really loves too, is just kind of wandering around in the basement. All this horrible stuff is happening. What? There for a second. I thought, all right, let's just put it out there. Did she do anything weird to the cat? Nope. Not that I know of. Okay. Well, at least the cat. You know, I'd be pissed about that. I know how you feel about animals and I, you know. At least the cat made it out okay. So the defense was my overall take. I don't feel like the defense attorney was connecting. I don't feel like he was hitting with the jury. I've never seen the jurors, never talked to them. I've never been to law school, but I know if I was on a juror, he would have irritated the Jesus out of me. But I also want to say about this defense attorney that he had an uphill battle from day one. I can't imagine. Okay, here's your case. You have a criminal defendant charged with murder. And they have hours and hours of videotape of her confessing in graphic detail all the horrific things she did to this victim. And by the way, she attacked her last attorney in court. This was not a desirable client. I can't imagine sitting next to this person for all that time in court. Well, forget sitting in court. This guy had to go meet with her at the jail or wherever she's being held. He would have to go over the evidence with her, talk about discovery. They would have spent a lot of time together and mostly in places where 
you wouldn't even want to be by yourself. I can't imagine. They stepped outside the courtroom at one point to confer over whether she was going to testify. And I remember feeling bad for that attorney that he had to be alone with her, a stronger man than I am. But in the defense's closing, the defense summed up their case by saying that you can't always trust what the defendant said because she says weird stuff sometimes. And he argues that we really don't know what happened. And he said that the sexual assault count is unproven because all we have is what the defendant said happened. And she says weird stuff sometimes. But the victim's DNA was not positively identified on the dildo. So that doesn't corroborate what she said. She's saying that, that she inserted that into him in various places, but the DNA was inconclusive. So there's no proof that happened. Wow. Don't believe my client. She's crazy. He even made a comment to the effect that it shouldn't be sexual assault because the parts she had relations with were here and over there. His argument was perhaps technically significant, but just made the whole thing sound worse. Yeah, that's not great. I understand technically, logically what he's saying, but when you say it out loud, it just amplifies the whole thing. Yeah, you're like, okay, dude, if that's your best argument, sit down. That does not make anybody feel any better about that. Now, I have to tell you one other little detail from early on in the trial where a mutual friend of theirs is on the stand. Bless his heart. Seemed like a nice guy, but he explained within probably five minutes of questioning that he has mental health problems when he couldn't remember dates and things and was a little off. It didn't appear to be any deception by any means. It just was, he was kind of having some problems with dates. Didn't you say that this all took place, what was it, February of 22? Is that what you said? Yes. And then the trial's in July 23. It's one thing if something happens to you that's significant that you think, oh man, yeah, I'm never going to forget that day. But if you're not that involved, you're just tangentially related, you're not going to necessarily remember things that happened a year and a half ago very well. Yeah, that wasn't the case. He goes from saying something to the effect of, oh, I'm really great with dates. And then like he <laughs> loses three years and then he's in the middle of testifying about something, answering a question and it just stops right in the middle and goes, I'm sorry, what did you ask? No. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This guy was, God bless him for being there. I don't remember whether it was on direct or cross, but they asked him about a time he had spent with Shad and the defendant. And he explained that they had gone to someone's home and, you know, they were just kind of sitting around and chopping it up. And at this point, the defendant is trying very hard to hide her laughter behind a cup and her hand and a folder because when he says they were just, chopping it up the three of them hanging out together she's over there laughing and i think everyone in the room wanted to know what the heck he meant by chopping it up yeah like be careful dude it sounds like you're a couple words away from getting a nice new pair of handcuff bracelet right the prosecutor asked him i'm sorry to show my age but what does chopping it up you said what does that mean and he's like oh it just means talking about stuff and hanging out my first thought was, how in the hell could have whoever called him not gone through this and said, no, don't ever use, are you kidding me? But I can also see they go through his prep and he never uses that phrase. And then he gets on the stand and all of a sudden, this is the stupid phrase he picks to use. Yeah, so you could prep somebody and then they get on there. And once you put the lights on and the, all that stuff, they go sideways. At the same time, though, you might have to subpoena a witness. So they're going to be required to appear at court. Otherwise, they're violating a court order, which gets them in big trouble. 
So you show up. Well, you're not going to be prepped because you don't want to be there. So the attorney doesn't have the ability to prep you. And then the other side of that is there's just some bad attorneys. Some of them just don't do it or they don't do a very good job. And the only other thing I'll say in the attorney's defense is you do have to be a little bit careful with witness prep because there's a fine line between let me make sure you're aware of what to expect. You understand the questions I'm going to ask and you know what you're getting yourself into versus coaching in a way that's not okay, right? Okay, like if the prosecutor met with this dude a week before and said, okay, I'm going to ask you about this and that and the other. What were you doing with them on this particular day? Oh, we were chopping it up. It's got to be okay for the prosecutor to say, please don't use that particular phrase. Yeah, for sure. There another way you could say that. I agree with you 100%. Yeah. Was- I bet the first time the prosecutor heard it was when he was on the stand. Probably. I don't think that helped the defense either. Oh, yeah, no. Especially the way that you're saying she responded in court. That's just awful. Would this guy have even known the details of what Shub Business did? It doesn't seem like it. I'm not sure what his real point... Maybe it was to put the the victim and the defendant together around the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Before. His testimony was very brief, and it was they hung out, and then he parted ways with them. I'm old now, so I don't know anything that young people say. So chopping it up, I have no clue. But what are the odds, right? I mean, what are the freaking odds? Right. I'm old as dirt, but I'm pretty up on that slang with my kids and whatnot. I was like, it about fell over when he said that on the stand. I was like, what? Are we chopping it up right now? I guess we are. So I want to tell you about how the things went with the verdict. And then you're going to have to explain some of what this means. So... It took the jury Wait. 41 minutes. Oh, man, you beat me to it. I was going to say, I can't give it to you in minutes, but I can give it to you in what they did. They went to the room. They picked a four-person if they hadn't already done that. They all went to the bathroom, and then they filled out the verdict form, and then they came back into the courtroom. However long that took, that's how long it took. When they came back in 41 minutes, I was thinking about, well, if they all got a bottle of water, went to the bathroom, and then if you add in the filling out the forms, yep, uh-huh. yep, I, I think you're right. I think they knew. So that was the trial, and that's what the judge kept referring to as the first phase. And then they entered what they called the second phase. Well, at least once I heard the judge mention that now this was a civil case to decide, okay, she's guilty. Now, was it a mental disease or defect that she had when she did this? And when they went out to rule whether she had a mental disease or defect at the time of this killing, that one took them right about an hour, a few minutes less, a few minutes more. But they were required to come back with a 10-person majority, and they came back in that hour unanimous. Yeah, I mean, wow. So they had the unanimous on guilt, and for the second phase of this trial that they called a civil thing, they were determining whether she was not guilty by reason of mental disease or defect. If she was found to be not guilty by mental disease or defect at the time of the killing, the judge would send her to a state institution or whatever. What that might mean to them is if we say, yeah, she was probably out of her mind because only a person that's crazy would do this, maybe she gets sentenced to a an institution, they put her on some kind of medication that makes her appear normal. Mm-hmm. And then once she appears normal, then she gets released. Yeah. And who wants that? I've looked at the Wisconsin statutes on this. Again, not licensed in Wisconsin, but I can read. Put down for me. And it, the way I read it, if she were to be found not guilty by reason of insanity, the judge would have at his disposal when sentencing her to a mental institution the ability to sentence her to an amount of time at the mental institution equal to 
the sentence that could be imposed under the statute for which she would have been convicted. So in this instance, if it's life, he could say, hey, you're going to be at a mental institution for the rest of your life. And then there is a way to petition to try to get out. And that's always a possibility. There's a whole bunch of subsections that deal with what that looks like and how to do that. So the possibilities there, to your point, it's something the jury is definitely going to be thinking about. But at least um, it's not like you murder somebody, you should get a life sentence. And you just get sent to the loony bin. And as long as you you turn it around, you could get out in a year. Is that possible? I don't want to say it's impossible, but I don't think it's um, necessarily quite like that on the usual, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's not a direct path of go over here and then just prove you're cool and you get out. Uh, Yeah, it's not like an immediate boop. Okay. There are some procedures baked into it that ideally try to prevent what you're talking about, because I'm sure that's been an issue in some jurisdictions and in some cases, probably even in this jurisdiction. Well, how about if I put it this way, then I can only imagine that any jury would be terrified of the thought of this woman being on the street anytime soon, if not ever. Yeah. And I would agree with them. It's awful. So I think you wanted to ask me, what did you want me to talk about? I was confused in the beginning when the defense attorney said, our case is we're pleading not guilty, but we're also pleading not guilty by reason of mental disease or defect. I thought that not guilty by mental disease or defect was an affirmative defense and it was just one thing, but this was clearly two separate, we're going to find guilty and then we decide crazy or not. Some jurisdictions have what's referred to as the McNaughton rule which comes from English uh, 18th or 19th century common law kind of thing that's been adopted and brought over here in some places. That's not what Wisconsin has. They use the model penal code test. About half the states in the United States use this model penal code test. Um, Initially in Wisconsin, you're going to try the case just like you would if insanity wasn't brought up. So it's just a normal trial. There's not going to be any question or evidence about the mental capacity. If the jury finds that they didn't do it, then it's just clean and easy. The case is over. It's done. You're not guilty. If the jury were to find, yep, you are guilty, then we're going to move into the second phase, which is treated differently. And the reason it's treated differently is because in criminal proceedings, the state or the prosecution, if it's a federal case, always has the burden. And the burden is to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the defendant is guilty of whatever he's been charged with or she's been charged with. When we move into this insanity phase, the burden shifts. It's now the defendant's burden to show that they are not guilty by reason of insanity. Under the Wisconsin law, it says the defendant must establish to a reasonable certainty by the greater weight of the credible evidence. So this standard is your basic preponderance of the evidence. I think at one point we were talking and you kind of explained it like 50.01%. And this is credible evidence. So if the evidence isn't credible, then you don't have to consider it. And that's going to be part of both sides' arguments, I'm sure. But it's on the defendant. The defendant bears the burden to show that they have this mental disease or defect. And they have to show it by a preponderance of the evidence, which as far as standards go, that's nowhere near as high as beyond a reasonable doubt. But it's also, it's not the lowest standard either. It comes down to more likely than not, right? Yeah, that's pretty much it. It wouldn't take a whole lot. For somebody to find. And given what you've described in this case, her behavior alone, even in trial, is so bizarre. I would think if I'm the defense attorney, I'm going to go like, have you been paying attention to her during this trial? Have you listened? Have you watched? Like, look at her. He was not super direct or aggressive. I was surprised because I thought like the one thing you've got with this obvious nut is that she's obviously nuts. You might yeah. as well 
embrace that because that's plain as day. Yeah. But one thing that they made clear was that we're talking about what her condition was at the time of these killings, not today or not the day after the killings or whatever. What was her mental state at the time of the killings? And they pointed to all the things that she said and they went strongly back to she saw him turning purple. She said she wanted to see him die. And they also referenced voluntary intoxication. I know exactly where you're going to go. She couldn't say, well, I was on meth, so I'm not responsible because she chose to take the meth. Right. Yeah. You don't get to claim insanity by doing something that you voluntarily caused yourself. If somebody would have doped her up against her will, held her down and shot her up with something that made her crazy, and then she went and did something then potentially you would have the insanity defense available to you. But when you voluntarily ingest substances that alter your state of mind and you've done it of your own free will and volition, then that defense for that reason does not apply to you. You can't avail yourself of that. Look at everything that's happened here from the crime all the way up through now and you think, this woman's got to be nuts. But I still think the issue, if I were a juror, I know what I would struggle with is I don't want any way that this person ever sees the light of day again. Yeah. Her father testified in the second phase, and unless I missed it, no one addressed why he was in an orange jumpsuit and handcuffs and shackles. Interestingly enough, that was one of the few clips that I watched in its entirety, and I was curious to find out why. And I agree. I did not hear it. My guess would be that somebody probably wanted there not to be a discussion about why. And it probably isn't germane to what he was testifying about. But there was probably either a motion or a ruling that we're not going to get into why he's in custody and what he's there for. I feel like not saying it is, to me, it's worse than whatever the worst could be. Oh, sure. Yeah. Because if I don't know, I have to assume the worst. And if I'm going to judge his testimony is not credible... I don't know, but her dad testified and they asked questions about her as a child. And he testified that her mother died when she was nine or 11 and her brother was the other. One of them was, they were like nine and 11 something. And that that was really rough on her. And then her brother died in July of 2022, which would have been after the killing of Shad. And then the defense attorney asked him something about the defendant having a child a year or so ago. And the dad got defensive and was like, why is that relevant? Why do we need to talk about him? And I was like, oh, that's interesting. But that child, the child of Miss Shabusiness, is apparently living with her grandparents, Shabusiness's grandparents in Texas. So if she had the kid like a year ago, that would have been what, like July of 2022-ish ballpark? Well, I don't know. It was something about a year, year and a half ago. Is this possibly Shad's kid? The defense attorney said a year or so ago, the dad was very resistive toward that. And what the defense attorney appears is trying to get to is that while she was pregnant, I guess the dad got her to go into a psychiatric facility. And I'm not sure why he went that particular direction. I'm sure there was a reason, but that was the point that he was trying to get at. The defense attorney's asking, like, she was doing pretty good there for a while and whatnot, And the dad's like, yeah, she was doing pretty well until her boyfriend slash husband got out of jail. And then she began using meth, heroin, et cetera, and referred to the boyfriend slash husband again and said, just a f***ing loser. And he got my daughter involved in that shit. I think he was referring to Warren Chabow, who is the one that changed his name to Shabusiness. Yeah, and he was clearly unhappy. According to what I can find, and there's very few sources and there's not many details, 
but it appears that what her dad is in prison for is sexual abuse of a minor. Oh, and yeah. then yeah. this Warren Chabau, he has done time for distribution, possession, drug offenses. So out of this family of mom, dad, Miss Shabusiness, and her brother, mom and the brother are both deceased. Dad and the sister are both in prison. That entire family is wiped out. Yeah, wow. That's Except she has a son in Texas with the grandparents, which I assumed it meant it was Taylor Shabusiness's grandparents. So I don't know if that is the father's parents or the deceased mother's parents. Hopefully, whoever's parents, Granny and Pawpaw, are good human beings and they give that kid a good life and gets out of that cycle of whatever's going on in that family. That's awful. It sounded like from when dad testified, my recollection was that mom died in the bed one night. Were you able to find anything else about that? Is it Was it more than what he made it sound like? Or They didn't go into any details, but at one point, someone there said that she was sick leading up to that. So I, I don't know. They did not explain. I feel like those are the kinds of questions I would have liked to have heard him ask because either way you slice that, I think you'd be looking to create some empathy for your client. Mm -hmm. And if you find that while she was a child, her mother had this terminal illness and it was bad, that would suck. And if you find that she just surprisingly woke up dead one day, that would suck as bad. Yeah. That seemed more important to me than was she pregnant a year and a half ago? I think where he was going with that, based on what you said, if dad got her checked into a psych ward because he was concerned while she was pregnant, that's the way that you ease into that and you make it all make sense for the jury. You're kind of building a story and you're trying to humanize her too. Oh, she's got a kid without saying she's got a kid and it has no point in me telling you that. I didn't think the defense attorney did the best job of creating a narrative through his questions that took the jury where he maybe should have taken them or where he wanted them to go. There were a lot of points that I didn't get what story he was trying to tell, which made it feel to me like there were a lot of questions that were just random. Yeah. And maybe he had a plan, but I didn't see where the story was getting strung together. Yeah, I would agree. And sometimes it's tough because there's pretrial rulings and things. So some doors are closed. So the attorney tries to get right up next to the door and hope that some juror picks up on it. But I have a question. So the dad, do you have any dates on there for when he was convicted or when he started serving his sentence or whatever his crime, this sexual abuse assault stuff was? I think it was the week before. Like the week before the trial? Yeah. So Shabusiness's father, whose name is Arturo Coronado, he is currently serving 12 years for second degree sexual assault of a child. And he was convicted a week prior to Shabusiness's trial. Wait, that's her dad, right? Yes. Oh, okay. For some reason, I thought you said that was Shabal, like the guy's no. father. I got you. Wow. Warren Shabal is her husband or ex-husband. And he is serving time on federal drug charges. Over 500 grams of methamphetamine. Wow. A legitimate meth dealer. That's a lot of meth. Yeah, I agree. Oh, wow. Well, it seems like nothing is on the radar, at least that we know of, until mom passes away. And then mom passes, and then the family, it's like a spiral from there. You're saying that there's some reporting that dad... There might have been some kind of sexual abuse. That's a big deal. That's serious and awful. And then you've also got the brother who has passed away, and she's out here doing 
terrible things. It seems like this is just just awful. I mean, just awful. And then you know, she's hooked up with her ex-husband, who is apparently a convicted a drug dealer or at least an alleged drug dealer. Oh, man. I don't know that you ever said, do we have like a specific area of Wisconsin where this took place? Yeah, they are in the Green Bay area in Wisconsin. I don't know that they're in Green Bay proper, but. You know who else was from Wisconsin who was sick and gross and like to chop people up? Dahmer? Yep. If you're listening to this podcast, you probably have at least heard of Jeffrey Dahmer. He was a, a guy that was in Wisconsin and he dismembered 17 men between 1978 and 1991. He also was cannibalistic, so he would eat parts of the men that he dismembered. He liked cold cuts. <laughs> Uh, and was generally just a sick, awful, twisted human being. Yeah. Wow. Wasn't there some testimony during the trial from some kind of an investigator who had done some deep dives or a cell bright extraction on her phone, and there was some uh, relevant and creepy search history related to Dahmer? I'm trying to verify real quick. Okay. So the testimony came from a former Green Bay Police Lieutenant, Jenna Liberta. And she described what she found whenever she was looking through Shibusiness's uh, electronics and said that there were several Dahmer-related photos saved on her phone, as well as a roughly 24 online searches about Jeffrey Dahmer. And her defense did not want those to be admitted as evidence, but uh, the judge denied that. Which is fair, because it strikes me as more of a sick, twisted fantasy that she has in her head that she's going to act out as opposed to just a meth-fueled, deranged, psychosis-induced crazy night. It's not a blip yeah. on the radar. It's not an aberration. This is like something she's building up to. Yeah, there's a photo servicing where this business woman apparently kind of took a selfie with a picture of Dahmer. Wait, what? Like, huh? Yeah, I thought you had that part. Well, he's he's dead. Right, with a picture of him. Oh, with a picture. So she like photoshopped it. So 11 days before she killed Shad, she took a selfie of herself next to a cell phone with a picture of Jeffrey Dahmer displayed on the cell phone. Okay, let me get this straight. So she's got a phone in her hand to take a selfie, and she takes a selfie while she's holding another phone with a picture of Dahmer on it. Is that Yeah, right? well, I don't know what she's laying on. It's like maybe there's a pillow there. So she's got like the phone that has the picture of Dahmer mm. laying next to her head on the pillow. And then she's taking a picture of her. That's so weird. Yeah, She's laying here and it's like she's got Dahmer's picture on a phone on her pillow and she's laying there smiling next to it. A big old smile on her face too. Wow. And you said this was how soon in time to the when she committed the murder? Uh, 11 days. It seems to me like this was some kind of like sick fantasy that was building that she just... Kind of like she told the investigators, I didn't really care one way or the other about what he wanted, or I didn't really think about the outcome. This is just what I wanted to do. Wow. As far as where this goes from here, her sentencing is scheduled for September 26th at 9.30 in the morning. Hey, thanks for hanging out with us on the Brothers in Crime podcast. Feedback and suggestions are always welcome. For links and resources related to this episode, please see the show notes or visit us at brothersincrimepodcast.com. We hope you'll save, subscribe, or bookmark us on your favorite podcast site and join us for the next episode. Damn, I'm dry. I swear he's not smoking weed, ladies and gentlemen. I'm going insane. Uh, I don't want to know.